This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. Christopher Luxon has moved to Lochiner's base with the National Party's populist crime policy announced over the weekend, writes Duncan Garner this week. But is he just stoking fear? Duncan, it felt like a little bit of back to the future with the crime policy announcement. What's your take? Yeah, you could probably you could probably pick out um, in the last 25 years um, the mid-year conference, yeah. um, which is always Wellington-based, um, the final year before the election, you know, the final one before the election, is usually on something like this. It's usually on, you know, whipping up... Um, not so much fear, because I think people have some genuine concerns, and a friend of mine was beaten up, we'll probably talk about that, but um, that people have genuine concerns, um, concerns that weren't here, say, 15 years ago. We've had the rise and rise of the 501 deportees, and there's more than 3,000 of them. 70% have re-offended. I mean, that's, that's, that's genuine fact. Mm. So the streets are probably have changed since COVID. Not everyone's back in the city, so there's some empty spaces, there's some dark places, there's some potentially more bad people in there than there have been in the past, and it's a recipe for thuggery and trouble you know and we've all got our anecdotes or our mates with anecdotes but you've got a particularly yeah. personal one at the yeah a friend of mine was out for dinner um, Friday a week ago six of them three couples um, just before 11 o'clock left the restaurant and four well dressed guys lunged at her bag um, it was a setup. Mm. they knew what they were doing because they were they were disarming because they were well dressed and um, my mate jumped in to try and you know stop them attacking his his, his, his partner and he chased a guy into a shop and, you know, he, he, he punched him or whatever. And then he came out to the three other attackers who beat the shit out of him. And he was left for, for dead, you know. He was bloodied and battered and bruised and unconscious and was hit, kicked in the head and everything. So he's okay. But it'll be a bit of a recovery. His confidence is gone. And this, this is, is Auckland a, CBD? This is a Hobson Street, Auckland CBD. There's a, lot of our, a lot of our readers will, will either work or park or live in around this, this space. They'll know it really well. It's the, it's the road that takes you out of town. Under the motorway, Hobson Street, it's the, where the Sky City Casino is. That's where a lot of activity is. But mm-hmm. it's a bit dark and seedy up the other end. And um, it's not well lit. And the police headquarters are right there, or the old ones. But they left town. Mm-hmm. And in came the 501s and the gangs, gang members and so forth. And it's been, you know, the police are too far out. I know they're on the fringe, but the fringe is too far away. And there's no presence. And I think the, the place has changed. That's why Luxon, that's why I talk about Luxon this week. His timing's good. Mm. You know, people are genuinely concerned about crime, and um, he's scratching a few itches there. It's, it locks in base, as, as you said. 30% is national's base, probably. Uh, although Bill English found it a bit lower than that. But, um, but uh, yeah, that Luxon needs to get those people home first. You want to you get those people home, that's your, that's your bread and butter, and then you build on that yeah. towards a coalition. And clearly, they want 45%, which is their target. Uh, he's, he hasn't been at 45%, I don't think, Luxon, in, any, in any, any poll, so he's got a bit of work to do. So you lock in your base, as we've said, it's sort of a, a bit of a reheated policy. Just sort of really is reheated. Problems. I mean, yep. there's nothing in there that says to me, "Oh, this is going to change how criminals mm. think and behave." I mean, no. it never does. You can, you can throw maximum life sentences at people. The, the bad people do bad things uh, just because there's going to be more rehab. I don't believe there's going to be more rehab. Prisoners, prisons are, don't re- rehabilitate people. Do prisoners sign up people to gangs. Yeah, you know, and and and, and they don't rehabilitate. And there's no programs. Calvin Davis has overseen the worst rehabilitation effort of any government in recent history mm. he's, he's, he's tremendously useless and he hasn't done what he said he'd do and um, all he's done is let a few prisoners out during COVID mm. hopeless mm. 
locking in the base, but equally he copped a bit of criticism for you no know, costings for this policy and stuff, stuff like that. How much does that hurt it's with maybe it's, it's written on the back of an envelope. No one, yeah. no one trusts costings anyway. They usually end up with big holes in their budgets. Yeah, um, costings are, are, are especially from opposition because you haven't really if you have got a, you've got a treasury official that helps you out, but you haven't really got a, an economic unit there. This is their dream sort of wish list of what they will do in justice. It's not that much. I mean, getting rid of those historical cultural reports, I think they're quite crucial. Because mm-hmm. they tell a judge, show a judge where this person's come from. Well, I know a guy in the fallen in the headhunters gang who went to court and there was no such thing as these cultural reports, but he told the judge what his background was and this guy had been sexually abused and beaten and tortured by his, by his father who went to jail for it. He went from nine years to two years. He'd done 18 months in custody, so he was almost out. Mm. He got seven years off a sentence by telling the judge about his life. So I think I think you can't divorce yourself from backgrounds. And I, I think I think Chris Luxon, it's cheap, mm. it's cheap and cheerful, but it's, it's actually it's pretty pointless and meaningless actually. Obviously, also the National Party conference. You can't really miss there at your own party conference. But how do you think he's placed? Sort of thinking a bit bigger picture. Um, this is the time where national shows it can govern this is the time when national shows it, it's an alternative government so mm. it, at some stage you'll see Luxon and Seymour do something together because that you have to because Seymour if national's going to get there Seymour's there so ACT will do quite well probably somewhere around close to 10% so which means that national will struggle to get 45 you know if mm. they're going to get 45 ACT doesn't get 10 yeah. so um, I, I think that was quite well choreographed it's all about how it looks now it's all about the image of um, of, of, of someone it's in charge like social of social media video yeah on really good and, um, and having the audience in behind him as well very Americanist mm-hmm. American style of politics where you have people behind Trump you know behind Luxon so they're now positioning him for you know to be the Prime Minister to, to look in charge and certainly he's done well in terms of stemming the discipline issues that National had National had huge discipline issues and they were very I mean, you look back at what Simon Bridges had to put up with them and that was a baptism fire but um, Luxon has stemmed it and said you guys want to fight we don't go to government you guys want to stop fighting we get a chance so I think he's laid the law down quite well I think Labour's discipline issues have gotten the way a bit as well yeah well this goes, this goes back years now and mm. I, I think you need to point the finger at Jacinda Ardern for some of this stuff she's left um, a bonfire mm. raging for um, Chris Hipkins who's he's doing his best to try and put out some of the fires um, disappointing especially some of these ministers I regard as quite competent would Regards as a bit of a go-getter, you know, he was pushing Auckland issues, and it's, it's a blow to Aucklanders because you need momentum. Cepoloni, I've always regarded as a bit of a placeholder. Uh, Welfare says write our checks. He goes, yes, how how big, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think they've lost a lot of momentum there, and, and I think it is. Quite, I know some people in the media say it's not much of a blow losing Wood. I think it is, and he was the candidate on the left of the party to mm. to take over. And I'll never forget Jacinda Ardern when she left Parliament, as she said goodbye on the stairs. She gave a special. She stopped specially to see Michael, and I could almost see that she says, sorry, he didn't make it. You know, I think he, he had a tilt and realised it wasn't his time. I still can't fathom how you can have 16 warnings to divest your shares and you don't do it. If someone sent me a parking ticket 16 times... You would have paid it. If a, if, if, a, if my wife said to me, I want to divorce you 16 times, we'd be divorced in the 16th time. <laughs> do you know? So, yeah. so I just think that... Um, I, I, I can't... It's, un, it's unexplained still, which is strange. Duncan, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Should a New Zealand athlete receiving high-performance sport NZ funding be promoting an OnlyFans page? Martin Devlin asks whether it is an appropriate way to raise extra funding in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, interesting topic this week. Who exactly is doing this? 
Yeah, a guy called Robbie Manson. He is a he's a single sculler, so he does the same thing that Mahi Drysdale used to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually the world record holder for um, the single sculls. He's been in and out of the New Zealand team. He's now part of that high performance program, and he's he's trying to make the New Zealand team for the world champs, which I think are in Belgrade in September. Okay, and so what he's basically saying, I'm not getting paid enough. I'm going to raise some extra cash on the side, or what's uh, what's well, the reason? Right. I, I think that's what we all assume it to be. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, let's establish what OnlyFans is. I mean, OnlyFans is a is a porn site, mm-hmm. um, and I hesitate to say that out loud because it's kind of awkward and a bit weird, and you just kind of wonder how people are going to react to that. But look, I just wanted to write the piece, Hamish, simply because I think it's an it's an interesting one in that I'm fascinated to see how people judge this or what side they take to this or whether they uh like i am and go okay well whatever or, or whether you know you have some kind of moral outrage to it or what your response is and i think every individual has a right to 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 come across and to actually express whatever it is they feel about it my own personal opinion is you know i just like the unusualness of it mm. i wish that um you know our high performance athletes who are trying to achieve and win things you've got to remember they're doing it for new zealand they're doing it we're the we're the ones who bask in all the glory afterwards we love it when you know these these athletes overachieve you know it, it obviously clearly says to me that there's you know whatever he's getting paid funding wise isn't enough to to be able to keep him training hard and trying to achieve his goals um you know i did find it a little amusing the way that he describes the only fan site and i understand that at the same time um, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, if you want to go fishing, and I do recommend you don't do it in your working time, ladies and gentlemen, because your boss might have something to say, but it is actually essentially a, 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 a porn site. The degree of what you do on that site is obviously up to everyone that's got an individual page on it. But then again, who are we to judge that either? Mm. Have um, Has High Performance Sport come out and said anything about this? Are they, are they yeah, okay? Yeah, look, there's, there's a little quote I, I put, and I won't spoil this price, a little quote at the end of the column, because, of course, I went to them for a comment. I was, I was yeah. interested to know what they say. Um, essentially, what they're just saying, it's a personal and private matter. You know, it, that does raise a couple of questions to me. Um, Robbie Manson is openly gay. I'm only mentioning that because he's been, he proudly mentions that himself. But I do wonder whether or not, if this was a heterosexual athlete that was, a say, a very high-profile let me say all black or black cap or white fern or black fern or whatever, whether there'd be a different reaction to it. I suppose in some ways the part answer to that is simply that, well, those athletes are getting well enough funded that they don't have to go and try and raise extra mm-hmm. money elsewhere. Um, should a New Zealand athlete start to give a little page? I mean, how embarrassing for high-performance sport New Zealand and sport New Zealand. Do remember that they've got a budget of over $400 million. They employ hundreds and hundreds of managers and sports psychiatrists and all of these people at exorbitant salaries. And yet our athletes, the most they can actually earn, even if they are world champions, is 60 grand. And yeah, right. most of the people in manager are earning four and five times that amount. Mm. So, yeah, it raises many, many uh, different questions. But, you know, also... I remember back to a time a swimmer called Tony Jeffs um, back in the 90s, and Tony was a 50-metre freestyler, splash and dash for the Olympics for us. And she was sponsored by a strip club in Wellington. One, I can't remember which one it was. But at the time, I do I do recall, that was quite a moral outrage debate as well. Um, this one seemed to have slipped a little under the radar, which is really really good for Robbie because, you know, I'm, I'm glad it hasn't you know turned into a, a huge big cat fight about whether he should or shouldn't. But, yeah, I just thought it was an inter- It's the first time it's come up. Is it going to be the last time? Who knows? Probably not by the sounds of it, if they're not getting funded <laughs> enough. <laughs> I just look forward to the day that one of the NBR journalists puts their own OnlyFans page up there. No one's paying for that. Um, <laughs> I guess it does potentially raise, 
I mean, is he holding himself out as a as a New Zealand athlete? Is there an employment law question there potentially? I, I don't know. It's a... yeah, well, there has to be, doesn't there? I mean, and, and that's you know the serious, I suppose, side of it is that you know I don't know personally about you, but I, I know that for example that um, the owner of NBR probably has some stipulations in his contract in terms of behaviour. Um, you know, there's all that clauses around bringing a business into disrepute, and I suppose in that vagueness and greyness, that there may be questions from that. And I think most employers would probably balk at this depending on the status of the person in their employee. But yeah. again, that's obviously personal decisions and things, isn't it? In the wake of Australia's PwC scandals, consultants on this side of the Tasman should be checking their own houses are in order. Maria Slade writes in this week's Flipside. Maria, for those who haven't followed it, why don't you just give us a bit of a brief, <laughs> it's not really brief, but an overview of what's exactly been going on over in Australia? Yeah, well, as we've been discussing, Hamish, if you look at the timeline of this, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. Talk about tone deafness from PwC. In a nutshell, they had a partner, uh, Peter Collins, who was caught out leaking confidential Australian tax information uh, to other members of the staff at PwC so that they could help multinational clients effectively avoid these tax laws. And the ATO, the Australian Tax Office, kind of picked up on the fact that these multinationals, all of a sudden, within weeks of the law coming into effect had had suddenly developed these structures for getting around it. Amazing. Yes, indeed. And <laughs> Collins was um, forced to re- resign over the affair late last year and he was deregistered from the Tax Practitioners Board. But it didn't come out publicly until... January this year when the Australian Financial Review started reporting it. And then it all started to unravel and it revealed that there may be dozens of PwC staff and partners who were being passed this information. And extraordinarily, uh, PwC only launched an internal inquiry six weeks ago. And since then it's all happened. Partners have stepped down. Uh, you know, the, the current CEO, the acting CEO has been before parliamentary committees. But still, uh, PwC refused to reveal the names of who's involved and how it happened. But what they have now done is uh, they've decided they're going to split things off and set up a, a separate government agent, a, agency to handle government work because yeah. that'll, that'll fix everything. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what is this latest move to try and contain the damage, I suppose? So look, this is a $250 million revenue business yep. and they are proposing selling it to a private equity fund called Allegro mm-hmm. for $1.00. And Allegro will set up a company and hire something like 130 PwC partners and 1,700-odd staff and take on this work. The detail of exactly how this is going to happen uh, remains elusive, so the jury is very much out as to whether this could even work. Uh, you know, it, it seems it seem as a desperate measure by many that they've just left this too late and they're now scrambling. Has there been any commentary though of people about whether it will work or what yeah, expectations it's, are? It's just it's just far too early to to tell. We just don't know the level of the detail, and PwC hasn't even come out with an explanation as to how the leak happened in the first place. So how could you trust them? And they've lost all federal contracts, and they would now have to wait until 2025 for this new entity to be registered as a provider. So how it works, who would know? But if it does work, it will really change the way the big four firms, or or indeed the you know consulting firms generally operate so you know everyone's watching this very very closely for sure and you know earlier this year late last year you had EY potentially splitting off their consulting arm for similar sort of reasons obviously not on the back of a scandal but 
do you think there are any lessons here for New Zealand? Obviously, these are big global networks. In a sense, these are still individual companies within each country. But, you know, is anyone looking at this from a New Zealand lens yet? Well, Hamish, I would hope that they are, very mm. much so. And one person who is watching it is Simeon Brown, Nationals um, Public Service commentator, who's you know commented in the past about the vast amounts of money that the big four have earned, something like $316 million by his calculation, since Labour came to power. And that's just on core government work in our own bookkeepers series earlier this year we you know revealed that it could be anywhere between 40 to 75% of the firm's work so it's a big chunk of work yeah. and given the size of the New Zealand uh, government sector it, you'd be, it's almost a miracle we haven't had something like this before so you would think that these services firms will be looking at their own protoco- protocols very very closely uh, because it's pretty much a case of there but for the grace of the professional services gods go I at it the moment it almost feels like a matter of time really doesn't it <laughs> before something like this comes out okay <laughs> Maria thanks very much for your time thank you Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to this week's edition of Te Ohanga Māori, our column that deals with the Māori economy. And this week our columnist is Barry Suter and he's joining me from Tūranganui Akiwa, Gisborne. How are you doing, Barry? Yeah, really good. Um, the, you know, I feel sorry for others. Um, the situation down here is um, not the best in the sense of um, forecast by... Um, Gisborne District Council scientists that this is our new norm for the next four months till the end of winter. So we're going to expect to see heavy rains, uh, which means a regular regular shutdown in the area for, you know, at least 24 hours at a time. Um, so there's going to be major disruptions just ongoing. Yeah, I mean, this resilience word is, is coming up so much more often in the public discourse and uh, it really means means something down there, doesn't it? I, I hear you've... Have you, have you been up, up the coast monitoring the, the roads or what, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I, I travel uh, three times um, um, a week uh, for um, jiu-jitsu up the line to Whangarai and, and then the boys come back the other way for CrossFit. So we get to hear on a on a daily basis, you know, what the state of the infrastructure is. And, and I guess that's actually the um, hidden problem is that, you know, while we might be able to sustain 24-hour uh, heavy storms on a regular basis, the problem is that the water tables are full and the uh, rain has nowhere to go but sit in the topsoil. And then when you get compounding storms, that's going to move topsoil. Um, so there's a term down here they use called um, blue moonscape, and that's the uh, where uh, you know vast tracts of topsoil move off the hillsides, and you're just left with the sticky blue clay underneath. Um, that's at least 100 to 200 years recovery. Um, so we have a different kind of threat long term for the the region. Uh, in fact, the Morai where I come from. Um, we have gone past emergency and we're now in desperation as to how to save um, the soil on our on our hills. Um, because if we can't hold the topsoil on the on the hill that we uh, sit underneath, aside from the fact that it'll just swamp our our stream and our and our um, rai and that sort of thing, it means a loss of culture. It means we won't be able to walk over the land and show our young. Um, the, the the sites of significance and interest where our ancestors used to live, play, hunt and fight because they will no longer exist. Wow. 
it's it's a horrendous situation. I, I hope um, you're able to find some way to um, to remediate that. Um, I, there's not much of a, a sort of segue into your your column this week, or maybe there is. With with you know, if we have bigger manuka manuka plantations up there in the hills, then maybe the the land wouldn't be slipping so far. But um, you, you know, you've taken on um, I suppose the the misappropriation of the word manuka, um, and this is off the back of the IPONS um, uh, IP Office of New Zealand sort of refusal to certify manuka honey uh, as um, coming from Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, I know you don't really want to relitigate that particular decision, but you know it raises some interesting um, questions about the use of of Maori words um, to delineate you know treasures in Taonga that that Maori have treasured for for centuries. Yeah, I think there's well. First of all, there's three things. First of all, there is the segue, and the segue is perfect because the um, uh, manuka and kanuka plants are the nursery trees that give you the ability for your native forest to hold. Uh, when they're when they're sown and grown both naturally and planted, their root systems provide the mat layer on top, as well as the joining of the roots uh, between trees, and so that's how you get protection. Uh, which you can't get from pine. So the segue was a perfect one. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, iPod situation is an interesting one because it's very highly technical. And uh, really what I understand it's it's based around is the idea that the word manuka was already in the public domain uh, quite some time ago. And that uh, came out of, probably historically came out of um, the um, identification of the plant on this side of the Tasman and then the botanists in Kew Gardens and scientists in, in uh, England at Simon Cook um, uh, identified the tree on the other side, which had, does not have the same attributes as our tree, um, but they called it the same name that they had just picked up from New Zealand Manuka. So the, the, the name Manuka is not native to the lexicon of um, First Nations in Australia. So, um, um, and it just goes to show how people can uh, misappropriate a term. Um, and then the second issue is that uh, you let one tongue species like Manuka go, you will have no protection on the 55 to 100 others behind it. It could mean a serious impact culturally on Māori in New Zealand when we can't protect anything in our culture. Because it can easily be, I suppose, commoditized and and perhaps lose that that special significance. Is that is that what you're saying? Uh, absolutely. And then uh, you know, before we know it, we'll, we'll see my mother's uh, photograph on a can of um, bioactives in in the US. Mm. Uh, that's where it leads to. Mm. So how do you balance? Because obviously there are opportunities um, with manuka and, and other bioactives and other you know treasured Māori taonga. So how do you sort of balance, I suppose, the opportunity and the cultural sensitivity with, yeah, with cultural sensitivity, sorry, the opportunity with, uh, you know, doing it properly? So, uh, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not purporting to speak on behalf of, for instance, the Tepito Manuka Trust or anything like that. But just from a typical business and Māori point of view, um, I think the obligation uh, on Māori is, is um, a, a few things. So the first one is to continue to fight the good fight. Um, so the legal situation um, 
probably just requires a um, um, more effort. Um, I would say that um, you'd have to ask the question <clears throat> um, about the original representation in in the case and the, the quality of the evidence that was put up. I mean, um, we, uh, we, we locally here have just had a look at our own uh, genealogy and our own um, uh, history of, of the word Monica and the culture. And, um, you know, we have much more deep and profound um, treatment of the word uh, and what it means uh, in the culture. So I don't see that portrayed in the evidence uh, that, was, that was put up around the case. So uh, yeah, that's the first thing, fight the good fight. Um, the second thing is that we uh, really need to um, win the um, win the, the sales ground. So um, the the consumer is becoming a lot more sophisticated everywhere, and the consumer um, really does, when they buy into a brand. Uh, want to dive deep into that brand some uh, yeah, some of them uh, you know when you look at your custom segments there is um, a range of those segments that really want to understand the provenance and respect it and and identify with it and um, you know in modern um, consumer parlance they call that you know building tribes which is a funny kind of irony you know because uh, pretty much think Māori are pretty expert at, at tribe um, what tribal definitions are and how to build a tribe and how to, to build obligation and commitment and connection. So I think um, winning the marketing war um, is a good thing uh, just by having a, the much more deeper provenance and making that story well understood in the marketplace. So um, it might sound like a negative thing to say um, um, that the true Manuka honey comes from Māori in, in New Zealand. Um, that might sound um, negative versus the Australians, um, but when have we ever been scared of Australians? Very good point. Um, yeah, and, and thanks very much for your column this week, Barry. It's um, very thought-provoking. Thanks very much. Pleasure. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.